Paul began this introduction to his letter to the Romans by briefly sharing some information about himself, who he considered a slave to Christ, and yet at the same time an apostle, one who as a slave, completely submissive to the one who sends him, and as an apostle, one who has been given power and authority to do what he has been commissioned to do. And then he touches briefly on the content of his preaching, which is the gospel of salvation, before making it very clear that the gospel, and therefore everything that Paul preaches, is founded on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so the last part of this theological introduction is aimed at helping us to understand the people whom the letter is addressed to. Those Christians in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints uh, are the ones to whom this letter was originally written. So this is a message intended to bring about grace and peace from, the God, uh, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we read through it, we too will be blessed as the church in a different place. We're not in Rome, but we are the called out ones just as those who were re originally receiving this letter were as well. So let's read verses 1 through 7 again to get this full introduction. And then we will mo mostly focus our attention on verses 6 and 7 this morning uh, through this sermon. So beginning in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's thank the Lord for the word that He will give to us and we'll do that in prayer. Father, we are grateful to be called by your name. Those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ are now rightly labeled Christians, those who follow after Christ. And so help us, God, to be supremely concerned with the glory of your great name. Father, we want to understand what it means to follow you. We want to understand what it means to be saved by you. And so, Father, increase our knowledge of these things. Help our appreciation for your great work to be multiplied this morning and help that appreciation translate into a more zealous obedience to your word and worship to you, the King, who reigns over all things as a one holy Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we consider the audience of the letter that Paul is writing to, we're going to look at it first through, like I would say, a telescope. We're going to get the broad picture of who this letter belongs to and who it benefits. And then we're going to look at it through a microscope. We're going to focus in on the particular people who originally received this message. In other words, we'll see the broader audience and then we'll see the finer audience of this letter. So Paul is describing in verse 5 how he and the others who work for the sake of the gospel have been granted the grace to serve Jesus and the authority of apostleship all through the power of Jesus Christ. The mission that they are on is to bring about the, the obedience of the faith among all nations, all the ethnos that we touched on briefly last week. And in verse 6, just to make sure we don't miss this, 
Paul indicates that their work, the work of the apostles and the missionaries that were spreading the gospel and building churches throughout the land, their work applies to you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. What is another name for this group of people who are called to belong to Jesus Christ? It's Christians, right? This letter is to those who have been, as the Apostle Peter describes it, called out of darkness and into God's marvelous light. So it is worth noting right off the bat that this letter is not at its heart an evangelistic appeal to non-believers. Paul's great concern in this situation as he writes the letter to the Romans is to speak to those who have already been called and who already belong to Jesus that he might strengthen them to encourage and challenge them and to help them to get to know Paul himself and the content of the message that he preaches so that they might eventually work together in a meaningful way to spread the gospel to the nations. That's not to say that the non-believer who picks up the book of Romans and begins to read it will not benefit from its contents in some significant ways. There is much practical good here even for somebody who doesn't trust in the Lord yet. God's truth isn't only beneficial to God's saved people. We prayed just a minute ago um, for the offering, and often in our offering prayers, we speak about the Lord blessing our president and our elected officials and those whom God has allowed to have some kind of dominion and authority over us, that they might turn their eyes to the Word of God, even though many of them are not saved, that they might turn their eyes to the Word of God and let that influence the way that they govern us as a people. And so the Word of God can be a blessing to a certain degree, even to those who are not Christians. We've already noted that the book of Romans does such a good job of clearly describing the gospel that a great many people who are hostile to Jesus were then moved by reading the gospel of Romans in conjunction with the working of the Holy Spirit. They were moved to salvation. But especially as it pertains to our efforts to interpret this book, we will see, that it mo- we'll see its contents most clearly when we understand that it was directed and written for those who were called by God to believe in Him. And I want to make an important distinction here, one that might seem obvious on the surface, but one that many people tend to struggle with. If this is written specifically to the called to Christ, then we must understand that not all are called to belong to Christ. The saving work that Jesus did, his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his miraculous resurrection, his glorious ascension, all work together to secure something important for Jesus by by giving his life, by suffering in the place of sinners, Jesus earned for himself something very particular, a people, a people for his own possession, a people that would be his, that he would shepherd from that day forward. And these people stand in distinction apart from the rest of the world. So we get a glimpse of this in another letter that Paul wrote in Titus chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, where he says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So how does he describe Christians there? He describes them as a people that he is purifying for himself as his own possession. These people will belong to him. They will be his. So here Paul speaks of the church in reference to the fact that God had promised 
Jesus, God the Father had promised Jesus a people for himself, a people who would act as a kind of blessing and reward to Jesus. This people is in a sense a gift from God the Father intended to give honor to the name of Jesus Christ the Son. The prayer that Jesus lifts up on behalf of the church in John 17 says as much in Christ's own words. In John 17, 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. He's speaking to the God the Father here in prayer. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So Jesus there is speaking about the church whom he is asking God to give a blessing to. But you didn't come to belong to Jesus by accident if you are one of these people. The scripture speaks very specifically about how this came to pass. Jesus called these people to himself. Now, when we try to understand what Paul means by addressing the recipient of this letter as those who are the called who belong to Christ, I think it's really useful to think of this idea of calling in two separate but very similar ways. First of all, there is an effectual call, and secondly, there is a universal call. They are similar but they are different in their effect. And so let's look at the universal call first. Sometimes this is also referred to as the general call. And to understand this, think for a moment about how you might call someone else in everyday life. How do we use that term? Uh, If you're a parent, you might take time each night to call your kids down to come to dinner. Gather around the table. It's time to eat. Uh, You might call a person's number at the food pantry if you're working at our ministry to beckon them to come forward and and get some groceries and take them home as a blessing. Or if you're a teacher at a school, you might call roll at school to try to see which students are present and which ones are absent. So those are different versions of calls. And then there are more serious calls. You might get called to the principal office if you're one of those students and you're acting up. Uh, I know Mr. Steve won't uh, hesitate to send you there if it's necessary. Uh, You might be called to pray over dinner. Some of you get really nervous when that happens. You're at a family gathering and someone looks over and says, hey, would you mind blessing the food for us? You might be called to serve in that way. You might also be called to come to court to defend yourself in a legal way. That calling has a special name, doesn't it? It's called a subpoena. And so a call is a summons to respond. It can be very little, something very minor, or it can be something very serious with much gravity to it. The general or universal call is a summons by God to man. It is a declaration that man is in sin, that man has broken the law of God, and now he has to explain himself for that. He must repent, appealing to God for mercy and forgiveness, unless he wants to suffer the wages of sin, and the wages of sin being eternal death and judgment. The church is useful to God in bringing about this general call, aren't we? Mark 16, 15 through 16 talks about this. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. God sends out the notice of this general call through the church, through us, through other bodies of believers that are gathered together even this morning. Primarily, he does this in preaching as the word of God is opened and a man who is called by God expounds upon that word and helps you to understand what the word intends to show you about God and his will. That is the word preached 
And that preaching should be centered upon Jesus Christ and the gospel of salvation because that's what people need. But it is also done in teaching. When we gather for a Sunday school class or a small group, it's done in exhortation as we encourage one another or challenge one another. It is done as we raise our children to see what true discipleship means. It's, it's done in the songs that we sing and it's done in the prayers that we pray even. Notice that not everyone responds the same way to this general call. In Mark 16 again, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. So there's an internal component there that they must trust in the Lord God and that's going to manifest itself as a real confession if they go forward in obedience to the things that God has commanded. But whoever does not believe, of course, will not obey and their lack of belief is going to lead to condemnation. This is not, however, an entirely invitational call because there is a consequence if you don't respond to the calling, right? If you choose to ignore the calling or if you reject it outright, there will be a tremendous consequence to your actions. But you are responsible to react to the general call in one way or another. There is a second kind of call that the church is not really responsible for. It is a different kind of call because it is not optional to the person who hears it. They don't have the choice of, responding to it positively or negatively. If you hear this call, you will, without exception, respond to this call the way that God intends you to. And it is what we call the effectual call of Christ. Later on in the book of Romans, it'll take us months to get there. So I'm going to skip ahead a little bit without spoiling that future sermon, I hope. Romans 8, 29 through 30. Paul writes, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, to become conformed to his or to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined he also what called and those whom he called he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified it doesn't say that he called and then justified most of those whom he called it doesn't say that he called and then those who responded positively, he justified. He says, those whom he called, without exception, he justifies. To justify a person means that Jesus comes and he makes you right in a legal sense before the courts of heaven because through the blood of Jesus Christ, your sinful record has been expunged, has been paid for in full. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He speaks about that in a sense in which it's almost already done, although we know that we wait to be glorified and brought into our final state, and that will happen the day of our passing. Now this can only be speaking of the effectual call because it declares with certainty a series of events that God brings about in the life of those who are elect. This train of aorist active verbs cannot describe a general call because the general call can be rejected. In fact, it is throughout the world. Preachers are going to stand in the pulpit and preach a beautiful message of God's peace and reconciliation through Christ and many will hear that very message and will walk out of the, the church doors just as lost as they were when they entered. Since this describes what God will no doubt accomplish, it can only be speaking of the effectual call, not the general call. Paul's letter to the Romans is addressed to all who are called in this effectual way and in light of that way that Paul described his apostolic ministries in verse 5 where he says we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. There are people who receive this effectual call, in other words, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. 
all kinds of people in the world will be called in this effectual way. And so the people that God chooses to be his own possession is an incredibly diverse group of people. 1 Corinthians 1 verses 26 through 29 says, For consider your calling, brothers. And he speaks of this effectual calling. He's speaking again to Christians in that letter to Corinth. He says, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. If the Father has no say over whether a person responds faithfully to the calling, then this verse makes no sense, doesn't it? This verse tells us that God chose to call particular people. And in his wisdom, he intentionally decided that many of those whom he chose would be the last kinds of people that you would expect to choose him on their own. The last kind of people that you would think would, would bow themselves humbly in reverence to the Lord God. God often selects this kind of people to receive his grace because the contrast of God's transformational power in their life is all the better to display God's glory in Jesus. He has called generally all people to repent, but in the fallen state of their depravity, all of mankind says no to that general call. They are unable to repent because sin is what they want. They are cursed by the stain of the first man, Adam, and because of that, they will always reject the Lord until the Lord does a divine work in their hearts to make them see their need for Christ. That's why God has also called effectually those whom he has set apart to be his children. So God's selection is not based on a person's worthiness. It is not based on their merit. We are all unworthy. Salvation is not God looking down on a bunch of sinners and saying to himself, well, they're all rotten, but some are less rotten than others. So I'm just going to pick the ones that are, are the least vile and I'm going to make them my people. That's not how it happens. God, was, God has effectually called people based on their ability, not on their ability or worth, since salvation works, since the salvation works to give glory to God and to be a display of his might and his power, he has sometimes called people who, who are the opposite of that perception of holiness and goodness. Paul himself is a perfect example of this, isn't he? Before Paul was commissioned to serve the gospel and to go into the nations preaching this general call, he was a persecutor of the church. He was one who wanted to see the church brought down he was throwing Christians into prison and even authorizing their stoning death. Paul hated the church of God. And so when Jesus comes along and takes a man who was bent against the church and bends his heart back to a yielding position to Christ and subjugates him to Jesus in the, in the gospel, this is a glorious and mighty victory for the kingdom of heaven. And Paul himself counts himself as the chief of sinners knowing that the grace that it took to save somebody who was as wretched as him was beyond measure. And so something that we could take away from this as we think about how God calls people, not based on their merit or their background or their ethnicity, but he calls people from all over the world, from various walks of life. He calls the foolish. He calls the proud. He calls uh, the violent. He calls uh, the selfish and the lazy. He calls people like this from all walks of the world. 
So where you come from is not nearly as important as where God is taking you. And what you were should in no way compete in your mind and your hearts for prominence as you think about your new identity as citizens in the heaven. That should be more important to you than what you used to be. God has made you into a creature that can now love what is good and holy, who can now see the law of God instead of trying to get out from underneath it, will embrace the law of God and love it because it is an expression of the character of the one who saved you. The people this letter is directed to were called with this ineffectual calling and they were called to belong. Who do they belong to? They belong to Jesus Christ. Again in John, verses 27 through 30 of chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. In just a little while, we'll look at the, the final words of this introduction where Paul shows us that he wants grace and peace for the church. And earlier, uh, Pastor Paul preached, or prayed in his, his pastoral prayer that God might give us all the more confidence in our salvation, that we might see through the words of Scripture that it is the merit of Christ that buys our salvation and not our own works. And here as we see that because of Christ's mighty work, He has earned a people for Himself, that He's the one who retains us. He's the one who keeps us for Himself and no one can snatch us out of His hand. So what is a Christian? She is a called out one. He is someone who is living according to the natural rebellion of man for a time, this rebellion that he inherited from Adam. The warning signs were all around of the danger of his sin, but he ignored those warning signs. And one day God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, effectually called such a one and commanded that they repent. And they had to, in obedience, repent. And their hearts were changed. No longer did they want to fight against God. Now they wanted this God as their Lord and their King. That is what a Christian is. Peter preaches a gospel sermon on the day of Pentecost, shortly after the ascension of Jesus. He's preaching this sermon mostly to lost Jews. And he says this in Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 39, to his own people. He says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, how will you know if you are called? Well, you will hear the gospel and you will respond in the way that these men at Pentecost did. They were cut to the heart and they asked, what shall we do? They can't just continue living in the direction that they lived before. These ones who were cut to the heart and, and truly wanted to turn from their sins are ones to whom the calling was effectual in their lives. There will be an internal change, a change of belief. This Jesus that they used to be skeptical from, many of them were calling for him to be crucified a few days earlier. And yet now, because of the effectual call of God upon their lives, they're saying, what do we do to align our lives with this Jesus that you have just preached about and the gospel by which he is saving people? So there will be an internal change, but that will lead to an external transformation. 
God will then take that change of heart and he will put a desire in us to not be what we used to be, but to walk forward in obedience to Christ, to follow the laws of God with the grace that he supplies to us. Remember, the church is not capable itself of making the effectual call. That is the divine saving work of the Holy Spirit. So we cannot discriminate about who the general call goes out to. Our responsibility is to call generally to all, to preach the truth of Jesus Christ, and then to pray that the Lord God, by the power of His Spirit, would awaken dead sinners to new life. We preach the gospel to everyone. We pray diligently that some, as a response to God's irresistible love, working in ways that we cannot see, will embrace this good news. This first point about who this letter was written to is a general descriptor. It indicated that this is a letter that will benefit people of any persuasion who belong to Jesus Christ. And so in a sense, we as the church today are recipients of this letter, aren't we? We have great expectations that our time together in this book will indeed bless us and strengthen us. But the letter doesn't just have this telescope application. It also has a microscope application. It has an immediate target audience as well, who isn't us. And so after the first general address, the next two verses, or the next two descriptors rather, in verse 7, expand upon this first descriptor of who is receiving the letter, addressing the particular people who first read these words from Paul. And so we're going to see two aspects of what define these Roman Christians in particular. It is to all those in Rome, verse 7, who are loved by God. Who are loved by God. Now first, I'm eager to talk about the love, but let's not just glaze over the destination of the letter. This is written geographically, distinctively, to the church in Rome. Rome was a very important city in that day, for Rome was at that time still the capital of the greater empire of Rome that controlled vast amounts of territory surrounding the Mediterranean Sea. So everything that you see there on that map in color, that was under Roman rule. And the epicenter of that Roman rule was the city of Rome. So a place of great influence, a place that set the tone for many cultures. And so the church that was in Rome was in a place that was very strategic. The church in Rome may very well have not been one single body of believers. It could have been several bodies of believers that met in different houses throughout the city of Rome. Later in the 16th chapter, in, in, in verses 5, 10, 11, 14, and 15, Paul includes a list of names of those whom he sends greetings to. And he specifically points out five households that may well have been households where the church was gathering at in different points in the cities. And so within this city, the letter is specifically pointed at all those who dwell in Rome who are loved by God. Church, let us not forget that God's decision to save sinners from the very earliest revelation of this plan in the third chapter of Genesis is unmistakably an act of love. To those who are part of God's church, there is no more important blessing that you have received. There is no more startling turn of fortune. There is no greater generosity to be appreciated than the fact that we are loved by Almighty God Himself. And when God calls people to be His, this calling is not like a military draft. It's not cold and pragmatic. It's not a matter of drawing numbers out of a hat. It is not businesslike and matter-of-fact. 
It is in no way an act of simple necessity. It is a voluntary decision on behalf of God to do what is best for a people who do not deserve the best, but instead, because of their sin, deserve far worse. It is a calling of generous love. Romans 8.31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? To be loved by God is to experience His blessing, His favor. And God's favor for us must produce a boldness and a resilience that renders all of life's challenges to be small in comparison to the greatness of being loved by the God of all glory. And that is why in the fifth chapter of the letter to the Romans, Paul writes this regarding any suffering the church might enter into. He says in verses 3 through 5, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Christian, you are infinitely stronger because you are loved by God. Do you understand that gift that he has given to you? God's affection for you means that there is unlimited power that counts you as precious and worth caring for. Anything you have to come up against in this life is something that you can endure or even grow from if you know that God, who is in control of all things, directs all things and wants what is best for you, his child. If, uh, if you missed our evening or afternoon service last week, we were speaking about the early church fathers and then moved up into the modern day about how church has changed over the ages in some regards or how we have, we have adapted. Polycarp was one of the early church fathers that was mentioned in that DVD series. And he was an early church father who was uh, given the great blessing and joy of being discipled by the apostle John himself. John lived to be very old in age, probably 80 or 90 years old. I can't remember exactly what it was, but Polycarp lived to be about 80 as well. And he was living in Rome at a time when persecution against Christians ramped up dramatically, especially in this province of Smyrna, where national uh, pride ran very high. And those who were faithful to Rome had to offer sacrifices to the Roman pantheon of gods. And Christians were not willing to do it. And so the authorities in Smyrna knew that Polycarp was dwelling there. They did intel, they found out where he was, and they captured him. Polycarp did not seek out martyrdom. But when it came to him, he accepted it as the will of God. He, brought, he was brought before the magistrates of the city and, and those who were in charge declared to Polycarp that if he did not sacrifice, make an offering to these Roman gods, that he would face execution by burning as an act of treason, uh, a consequence of treason. Looking up at the magistrate, Polycarp is recorded as saying this, Fourscore and six years have I served him, and he has never done me injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? And he was put to death willingly at that point burned at the stake for the name of Jesus Christ. God has never done him injury is a humble way of saying that God has loved Polycarp. And having experienced this mighty love, turning away from Jesus was considered by Polycarp an impossibility. It's not even an option. Rather than recant, of worship, uh, re rather than recant or worship the gods of men, 
Polycarp faced his flames with bravery and faith at the end. Turn with me for a moment to Ephesians chapter 3, if you will. Ephesians is another uh, letter written by the pen of the Apostle Paul. And I want to read just a section here of what he wrote to those believers in the city of Ephesus, beginning in verse 16. It says that according to the riches of his glory, he, Jesus, may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Christians are to be rooted and grounded in the love that God has for His people. In other words, it brings stability to us to know, church, that we are loved by God. For the reality of God's love for us is so great that it puts every other thing into its right perspective. And I don't say that to mean that, that suffering for the Christian is nothing. We hurt, don't we, Christians? We pray for healing. We, we ask God for deliverance from affliction. We support one another in difficult times. We take medicine when we're sick, don't we? Because we want to get well again. We desire justice for God's people. We want, we want to stand up against wrongs that are done to others. We advocate for the weak. We don't look for suffering, but instead we try to live quiet and peaceable lives to the glory of God's name. But the sting of suffering is really nothing if we put it up in comparison to the love of Christ that has been granted to his people. And that is why in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul considers that even the wasting away of our bodies is just, here's what he calls it, a light and momentary affliction. Think about that. A light and momentary affliction compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing God and being lifted up in our inward being by him and his love. The love of God nourishes us like a root nourishes a plant. A plant supplies or is supplied every vital material that it needs from the root system that brings minerals up from the ground. The love of God is to be understood as the source of our vitality and holy productivity. As we experience His love, He fills us so that we might bear good fruit for Him. We can only think rightly about God when we proclaim God accurately because of His great love for us. He has supplied us with strength and the wisdom to do so. Our inner being is strengthened with power through God and the Spirit. And Christ dwells in our hearts through faith, meaning that the blessings of God's love for us are so great that we cannot help but love Jesus for reconciling us to God in Christ so that we can experience this wonderful love. And think for a minute about how that thought is wrapped up in Ephesians 3 verses 18 and 19 that I just read to you. It is Paul's desire here that the Ephesian believers, along with all Christians, would comprehend the full scope of God's love for them. The breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of it. That, would come to, that we would come to understand the three-dimensional dynamic love of God for his people. And then in the very next breath, Paul confesses that though it is our charge and our delight to comprehend this, that as we contemplate the unparalleled love of the one who loves us best, that we will come to know that this love is a surpassing knowledge. We can't fully understand it. 
We desire to know it, but it is too great for our limited minds to truly comprehend the love that God has given to us in Christ. By his own declaration, the greatest expression of this godly love for us is the redeeming work that Jesus does for us when he takes our sin upon his shoulders and suffers in our place. Friends, no one else has done anything like that for you. Some of you have been beneficiaries of some great and, and wonderful grace from other believers. Some of you have had, had great help and support from those around you, but no one has loved you like Jesus Christ has loved you. In his glorious, sinless, pure state, he went forward to receive the shame and the mockery that you had earned from your violations of God's law. Because you lied, he suffered. Because you took what wasn't yours, he suffered for that. Because you lusted, he suffered for that. Because you were lazy and selfish, he suffered in your place. This is the love that is poured out for you, that a very real suffering was experienced by our Savior, even unto death, so that the true and full weight of God's wrath upon your sin might be satisfied in the perfect works of Jesus Christ. Oh, how he loves us so. What difference should the presence of God's love in your life make in your life? Well, 1 John 4.19 says we love. Why? Because he first loved us. You really have no hope of loving in a godly way, friends, until you contemplate with gratitude the love that Christ has given to you. And when you see the riches of God's glory poured out into your life through grace and mercy, it's going to make you want to be graceful and mercy to other people. It's going to make you want to forgive others the way that you have been forgiven. You're going to love others in the measure to which God has loved you, although your love can never compare to his. A second specification about the recipients of this letter, also in verse 7, is that it's written to all those who are in Rome who are called to be saints. Called to be saints. Now, what is a saint? Uh, simply, it is someone who is holy, someone who is pure, someone who is set apart for the purposes and glory of God. The verb to be saints is so important for understanding at this point because Paul doesn't write that they are called saints as if their great character has shined so brightly that they've earned the title of saint, which refers to someone who is holy and set apart for God. No, this isn't Paul describing the fruit of their works. Jesus doesn't call the saints to himself because there were none until he died on the cross and sanctified his people. He calls sinners who are made into saints. So your sainthood is not something you deserve, it's something that Christ has earned for you. Over the years, the concept of what it means to be a saint has been very misunderstood, even by large portions of God's church. It has been common to reserve the title of saint for those who make exceptional name for themselves among Christians. Oh, the apostle Paul was such a saint. He planted so many churches and did such great work for the kingdom, but not me. I'm just an ordinary Christian. But that's not the right way to think about our status as saint before the Lord God. When people get the concept of sainthood wrong, it leads to far-reaching problems with the way that we understand man. Thinking of saints as the elite among believers takes the emphasis off of the work that Jesus has done and shifts the emphasis to the remarkable thing that certain noteworthy men and women of faith have done. So the designation saints is not about what they have accomplished, it is meant to point glory back to the one who has made them holy. Ultimately, it is about Christ. We should love the title saints then. We should not shy away from it or feign a humility to say, oh, I'm not a saint. 
We should love the title saint because it evokes in awe and wonder the transformational power that belongs only to the Messiah. He is the one that has made us something out of nothing. So your sainthood and the sainthood of those who are in Rome is a gift of the Lord God through grace. There is a holiness bestowed upon the Christian by way of God's expressed love for them. Being favored by the Holy One bestows upon them a degree of purity, a degree of holiness. It is what we call an imputed righteousness. The legal standing of Christ before God, of course, is perfect and holy, sin-free. And when Christ dies upon the cross for His people and calls them to Himself, those who trust Him in faith are then granted the legal benefit of Christ's righteousness. They are declared holy before the living God. They are, con- they are declared saints. And so when you think of yourself as a saint, don't puff up your chest and think of yourself as better than some other lowly person. But think about the fact that God, through His suffering, through His resurrection and power, has defeated sin so that you might not be in the dregs of sin, that you might not be held down by the master of darkness, but that you might dwell in eternal light with the Lord God Himself. Your sainthood is a cause for you to rejoice in what Jesus has done. That doesn't mean, dear Christian, the fact that you are a saint doesn't mean that that has rendered the need to pursue holiness as obsolete or unimportant in your life. You are a saint, but as God grows you, you are becoming increasingly more saintly, aren't you? I hope that's the case, right? Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Many people who just read verse 12 there uh, have found themselves in great fright. They have thought, oh, I must work out my salvation with fear and trembling. And they stop there. And they think that that means somehow that they have got to work their way into the good graces of God or show God through their actions that they deserve what He has done for them. Friends, we'll never never earn that. We'll never show that we deserve it because we don't. That's the beauty of God's grace to us. So read the whole thing. Verse 13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And it is not God's good pleasure for you to just take the status of saved saint and then live like a wretched sinner. It's not his pleasure for that to happen in your life. It is his pleasure by sanctification to continually work out of you all those echoes of your former lost self so that you might be all the more glorious in Christ by his imputed righteousness. He is working in you. And by doing so, God brings about more holiness over time. Learn to love this process, saint. Desire this process. Rejoice in the process of sanctification and pray that God will advance this process in your life. You are not the one who sanctified yourself even through your good works and your study and your prayer times. It is Christ sanctifying you as you simply cling to Him and abide in Him as a branch abides in the vine. I I appreciate what Douglas Moo, one of the commentators, Uh, that has had a lot of great things to say about the book of Romans uh, declared here about this. He said, Paul called men and women to a faith that is always inseparable from obedience. For the Savior in whom we believe is nothing less than our Lord and to an obedience that could never be divorced from faith. For we can obey Jesus as Lord only when we have given ourselves to him in faith. And who causes that to happen, church? The Holy Spirit causes that to happen. So even that isn't something we take credit for. By the 
effectual call. Those who are a part of God's church have been changed and their hearts have been pointed towards Christ now. And then for the rest of our lives, he is working the sanctification in us that causes us to see the law in new ways, no longer as the declaration that we are imperfect, but as the declaration of God's perfection that we can see and rejoice in and and humbly try to follow after with his help. We know that we can all still sin as a believer, but if God has loved you and called you, that sin is no longer native to you, Christian. You could force yourself, in fact, to live in patterns in the way of the world for a while. You as a Christian could start to ad- adopt some sinful habits in your life. You could start to mimic the way of the world. But if Christ has truly saved you, you would know the whole while that you are a counterfeit, that you do not belong in the broken world of sin anymore. That's not the kind of life that you have been saved into. In, in time, the Holy Spirit, which is one of your greatest gifts as well, is going to grieve your conscience and pierce your heart for the sinful ways that you're trying to walk in. And you would grow restless in that sin. And remember with a longing heart that the greater joy of Christ is more beautiful than anything that this world has to offer. And repentance would seem to you as as a fount of life and revival and renewal. If you are a saint, you cannot stay happy in your sin. So embrace your identity as a saint. Recognize that along with this new status that has been granted to you, God has also granted the power to exercise the obedience of the faith that he mentioned in verse 5. So now, church, we have a better idea and understanding of who Paul had in mind when he wrote these words in the book of Romans. He's directing his instructions primarily to believers who live in Christ, or who live in Rome, whose lives are forever defined by the love that God has shown to them. Now, the last line of the formal introduction reveals the intentions that Paul has for this specific people in Rome. What does he write to these people for? What does he desire for them? Paul's wish for them is the standard wish that he has for all people of God. He wishes for them grace, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If we are called by God, we are also supplied by God. And we can rest assured that we have peace by way of the grace that he gives to us. This stands apart from our circumstances. It stands apart from our works. And it is a peace that that Paul, the apostle, is determined to help the churches understand they have. Paul wants for the believers in Rome to have an ever-growing sense of surety that they are rooted and grounded in the loving grace that they have received in God. So to forecast this sermon series a little bit, one of the emphases that we'll see Paul make, and the emphases, uh, emphasis that is in many ways tied back to this formal greeting, has to do with the right way that God's church has to see the law of God and how that law of God compares to the gospel of God. See, the Apostle Paul knows that the Roman saints will not have grace and peace in abundant measure if they are viewing the law and the gospel distinction incorrectly. Can we as a church expect to have grace and peace if we think wrongly about the law of God? If we do not understand the seriousness of sin and the consequence of violating God's law, we will not be able to value the graceful mercy that he has been showed to us through his sacrifice and his resurrection. So Paul's going to start the book out by discussing in great detail the seriousness of man's guilt. Not only is it critical for us to understand our sin, but we must also be very clear about the solution to this sin. If we think the law of God is a means by which 
we might be able to overcome our sin and earn our way back to the Lord, then we're sorely mistaken. And there is no peace in that kind of thinking. If I think that my forgiveness is in any way earned, then my surety will be resting upon my abilities and not on Christ's. Christ is the perfect one. So I don't want to always be walking around thinking to myself, have I done enough? And Christ doesn't want that for me either. And so the gospel is the beautiful truth that he is the one through his righteousness who has redeemed us. And that any obedience we return to him is a reflection of the love that he has poured into us. So we're going to look at the gratitude of Christ in the second portion of the book of Romans. And if I think that the gospel has saved me, but I'm living as though the law is not God's law, if I'm living as if God's expression of what he not only desires but demands has absolutely no bearing on me, if I'm still walking like an unbeliever, then my confidence in Christ should be misplaced. If I am living as though I can take the salvation that God has to give but not give him the honor that he deserves and the gratitude that comes from that, then I am mistaken. And so Paul will then, in the last portion of the book, show us how to live in gratitude to what God has given to us. He will help us to understand how to walk in a truth that is fueled by, by the grace that Christ gives to us as this free gift delivered to his people who have been called effectually to, to believe in it. So let's rejoice in what the Lord has in store for us in the book of Romans. Bow your heads with me as we pray. God, we thank you for your amazing grace and, and ask that as we uh, get into the bulk of the argument here for uh, the, the letter to the church of Romans, that we will understand the particular and detailed theologies and doctrines that Paul is trying to bring to light for us. Help us to have minds that are willing to meditate on these things and to hear them several times so that they might sink into our hearts and minds. God, give us a, a patience to know that as much as we would love to be as holy as our name is, you have called us to be saints, you have called us to be followers after Christ, but we know that we still struggle with sin from time to time. So give us patience as we await uh, your working hand in our lives, purifying us and making us holier and bringing us ever towards the glory that you have in store. Father, may our understanding of the Apostle Paul give us all the more reason to worship you well and to give you glory and honor for you deserve every bit of it. And we pray this in Jesus' perfect name. Amen.